The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am now going to speak with Paul Giamatti. He has been nominated for an Academy Award. And better than that, he is now about to speak with moi, Madam Adams, herself in person. Listen, you have been in more countries lately than the movie. Did they understand yeah. everything of the about the holdovers in Europe? They really like it in Europe. And, and for some reason, that it, particularly in Germany, they really liked it. Um, so now it's going over good. It sounds like it's going over well everywhere it's playing. So, you know, France, England, other places. Yeah, it sounds great. Your performance is absolutely marvelous. But can you tell me, just looking at a script, if you can tell, just reading the words, if it's a winner? Um, yeah. I mean, I think you can tell it's going to be hopefully good. I mean, this guy, Alexander Payne, who makes these movies, you know he's going to make a good movie. You don't know that everybody's going to react to it the way they do. You don't know that everybody's going to embrace it the way they do. But I figure with him, yes, you, you, you do know from reading the thing it's going to be good. What about holdovers? You knew them in your own school days? Yeah, I went to uh, I went to a prep school like that. I knew kind of kind of kids from New York, fancy families like that, and I think some kids did have to stay over there. Yeah, for sure. I knew teachers like that for sure. I knew a lot of guys like that who taught for sure. Did, were you ever a holdover? No, no. I was a gay student. I didn't actually live at the place. I think that would have been a whole different ball of wax living at the place. It was those places were were rough and weird, and I think living there must have been really hard. But I was a day student, so I didn't have to stay there. Tell me, what is a holdover? Why are they? Do they have snotty rich parents who don't care? Yeah. Or, or, yeah, or, I mean, or well, well, explain like, what they are. It's like in the movie. I mean, you have kids who either for some reason, yeah, their families are screwed up, so they have to stay, or. They're from really far away. I mean, there's a kid in the movie is from Korea, um, and he's and he has to stay there. And the other kids are all because their parents are really rich and they've stayed away and they don't care. The main kid is left behind by kind of a family that doesn't really care about him that much. And you know, I, I it did happen that some kids had to stay. Yeah. <clears throat> How come you, if your dad was Yale president and and you you had that in your background, how come yeah. you didn't go the scholastic route? I don't think I, I mean, I like, I like learning and I like to read and stuff like that. I don't think I would have been good at teaching and I don't think I was any good at sitting down and writing books about, you know, whatever subject would have been. I just don't think I would have been good at it. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the fantasy of it sounds nice, but then I think the reality of it, I wouldn't have been any good at it. Okay. So, so how and, did and you I start? Did, I wanted to be an actor. So, I mean, that's really what it was. I just, that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be an actor. So I didn't, I didn't do the, the academic thing. Well, how did you, how did you start? How did you start? Where did you start, start becoming acting? an actor? I did it as a little kid. I mean, from the time I was a little kid, I liked to dress up as characters. I'd see something in a movie. I'd watch The Mummy or The Wolfman, and I'd want to be The Mummy or The Wolfman. I mean, when I was a little kid. I'd see anything I'd see, I wanted to act it out or, or people I'd see around me, movies I'd see mostly. So I always wanted to do it. Then I started really doing it as an extracurricular thing in college. And then I got out of college and I thought I really loved doing this. I moved out to Seattle 
which was as far away from New England. On what the, the hell are you doing in Seattle? Well, What's anybody doing far, in Seattle? It was as far, it was as far <laughs> away from New Haven, Connecticut as I could get on the continent. I got and it. I had friends and a girlfriend from out there, and they ran a little theater out there. I went out there thinking I would do, I don't know what. And I ended up making a little kind of, you know, I made a little living as an actor out there. And so I thought, if I can actually make money doing this, this is what I'm going to do. So I went back to drama school. Do you remember your first movie or your first when they, a film test? Do you remember any of that back then? What yeah, it was like? I absolutely do. Yeah. I, tell I me, tell a, me. Uh, I, had to, I went in for a part in a movie that I ended up getting eventually. I don't know if it was my first one, but I remember this audition process i did a not very good kind of slasher movie called i think it's called past midnight and that's the first movie i was in and it's not it's not good it's a, it's a trivia question because it's the first script of quentin tarantino's that was ever produced but nobody knew who he was at the time so it was this kind of slasher movie thing and i remember going through a process of getting this part of playing a a stable hand who was the product of I, mean, I can't believe I'm telling you this Cindy Adams <laughs> I, think the, I think the character was meant to be a product of incest so I, I played a guy like that's what I played in this movie I hate to tell you that somewhere I read since I've read every single thing you've ever done because you're so yeah. actually wonderful did you actually <laughs> you said somewhere maybe you lie a little bit but you actually yeah. said you thought maybe growing up you'd be a dentist that's what it, you said that somewhere, and I read it. I actually it. had a weird period of time where I thought that <laughs> I thought my dentist was fascinating as a kid. But here, this is what I mean. I want what I really wanted to be was an actor playing a dentist. I think <laughs> I wanted to play my dentist as a kid because I thought my dentist was kind of hilarious. So I think I went to a weird period where, yeah, I thought I'd be a dentist. Listen, listen, I mean, nobody's going to believe that this is Paul Giamatti telling me he really wanted to be a dentist. It's really no, great. I, okay. yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying. I think <laughs> I would say to myself, I want to be a soldier. I, at a period of time where I thought I wanted to go to West Point and be a soldier, what I wanted to do was play a soldier. What I wanted to do was play a dentist. I didn't actually want to be those things. What I wanted to be was an actor. Okay, I, I think I got the point. I think I yeah, got the point. Thank you. Okay, good, good. The Holdovers, is it playing in colleges, in, in auditoriums, the movie? I think actually it might be, yes. Somebody actually just told me that, uh, I can't remember where, some college they're actually screening it. I've been really happy that younger people have been into the movie. College-age kids and younger actually really like the movie. What was your college life like? It was good. I went to I went to Yale University and uh, I enjoyed it. I acted. That's why I started doing extracurricular acting, and I loved. I, I, that's where I really fell in love with acting. So I had a great time because that's all I did there. I just acted all the time, and it was great. <laughs> I had a great time. I did. It's all I did. Focus then on the Oscars. Did you have a feeling with this? part which was so magnificent did you have a feeling that it wouldn't bring an oscar nomination i did not but i had a feeling as it was going along that the movie might and certainly i felt almost from the get-go that dave vine who plays mary the, the cafeteria 
uh, lady in the movie would she's get it. Great. I did she's not wonderful. Think that. I did not think she's amazing in it. I did. I hoped that Dominic, the kid, would get one too. I'm a little disappointed he didn't, and I'm sorry, Alexander, the director, didn't. But I did not anticipate that I would. I really didn't. I'm not being falsely modest. I did not. I really didn't anticipate myself being acknowledged like this. No. Could you give me a special scene, or how you brought it together? How you read from the words and the script what you finally did with this part? Well, you know, I mean, there's so many examples of stuff in it that, you know, the language is already so rich and great that it, it carries me, you know, and it takes me away. I thought about teachers I played, uh, teachers that I had, and I brought a lot of that stuff to it. You know, there's a simple scene in it that's actually wordless. There's no words in it. And it's, it was my favorite thing to shoot. I don't know if this is really what you're asking me, but there's a scene where the kid and I, I take the kid ice skating. Yeah. And he skates around, and it's wordless. There's no words, and it's just the two of them kind of beginning to kind of like each other and realize that the other person isn't such a bad person. And there's something I love about the fact that it's totally wordless, and it's just the guy watching the kid and the kid having a good time that I just think is wonderful. And, and I think you see a lot of, the goodness of the two characters coming out in a way that hopefully is unexpected and nice. I'm not sure you see his goodness. We see yours. We can okay. see it. We can see it in your eyes. We can okay. see it in the way you do it. I don't understand how an actor can portray that. I'm dumb as hell. I really don't <laughs> get it. If you're looking at a, a couple of words on a page, how your yeah. eyes can twinkle. Tell me so I can understand that. I suppose if I could explain it, I don't know that I'd be able to do it. I mean, like I say, it's all you're just, I don't know, Cindy, that's like, the, that's, that's the hardest. I mean, it's the most basic and important question you could ask an actor, but I think it's one of the hardest ones to answer. I don't really know what I do. I just know that I connect imaginatively with something and I feel, I feel what I feel. You know, you're, you're just believing that I'm looking at a kid that I'm beginning to really feel affection for and, that just comes out, you know, and it, and it is all in your eyes. I mean, a lot of it for film acting is in your eyes. You let it just, you let the emotion just come through your eyes, I suppose. I don't know how I, how I do what I do. Well, that doesn't help I, me I at all. That tell. doesn't help I know. me at all. I know. I'm it doesn't smart. do me anything. Here's the <laughs> other thing. A lot of actors aren't that smart. So you ask them and they don't know what to say. And then this is true of me. Well, if you're reading something, I, I know that I'm, I'm pushing this, and, and maybe no, no, it's, no. An, it's, it's annoying, but... Yes, go ahead. I'll, I'll try to answer it. But, but if you read a word on a page, do you yep. then go home and act it out in the mirror, or do you start to parse the words in your gut? How does it come out? How does a lousy actor get it done? <laughs> Is what I'm asking It's a really you. good question, and it happens different ways a lot of the time, too. And a lot of it, yes, is for me looking at the script over and over again and sort of hearing the words and saying the words and running over them. Anthony Hopkins, I'll, I'll refer to a great actor and tell you what he said, because it's sort of what I do, but I don't do it as well as he does it. But he talks about how he reads the script over and over and over and over and over again, and the words keep feeding his imagination. And then it's as if he's eating the words and he feels them in his belly after a while. And he forgets the words and he just is now, he just lets his imagination carry him. 
So I think the words do a lot for me to, to get my imagination going, you know, and it starts there. Do I say it into the mirror? Maybe. Sometimes I'll walk around saying the words, and I'll just let them get into my body, and they'll change how I move, and they'll change how I, you know, they'll change everything. So it does start a lot of it with the words for me. Are you going to go with the rest of the cast to the Oscars? Uh, yes, I believe so. I imagine the rest of the cast will be there. I know Divine will be there, and I'm hoping Don will be there. And Alexander, the director, will be there, and the writer who got nominated, and the editor who got nominated. So everybody will be there, yeah. Well, I've seen your outfit in the movie. Are you going to get a tux? What are you going to do? <laughs> you <laughs> yes. got to fix up I'm a little, gonna, honey. I'm not going to have that beat up <laughs> corduroy suit, no, or a bad sweater. I will dress nicely. I will dress appropriately. I'll what about nice your outfit. own college background? Did yes. it help in this particular thing because you understood? Yes. yes. I think going to the prep school and the academic background I had with my parents and you know, my father's colleagues, my mother's colleagues. So I knew a lot of people like this. So I felt it was a very comfortable role in some ways. I felt like I knew a lot about it. In some ways, I almost knew too much. You know, it's like I had to kind of pick and choose, like, what to, who, who to think about when I played the part and stuff. The holdovers was absolutely magnificent. Okay, Thank where you. were you when you heard, when you heard that, this was to be up there. To be nominated? And stuff yeah. Like that? <laughs> Where were you having a I sandwich? What? I was at home. No, I'll tell you exactly what I was doing. I was at home and I was asleep because I stayed up late so that I'd be asleep because I didn't want to watch it or hear it because I was too nervous. I figured somebody would call me and tell me. And um, so that's what happened. My manager called me and told me. Uh, because I didn't want to be awake because I just was too nervous. It made me too anxious to, to watch or listen to them. Where are all your awards, Golden Globe and all the rest of that, Chazerai? <laughs> Where is it all kept? Where do you keep it? Do you dust it? Do you spit on it? What do you do with it? I actually have, I recently took some of them out. They were in a closet, and I actually put them out. I have a shelf. There's a bookshelf I have, and up they're all lined up along the top of a bookshelf in my in my apartment. Paul, what would you do yeah. to have your Golden Globe in a closet? What would be the point I of it? Was, I, 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 I didn't know where to put them. I was a little bit, I don't know. I felt like I didn't want to be a show-off, so I put them in a closet. Now I've taken them out, and now i put them out where people can see them. I'm, okay. no, I'm no longer worried about being a show-off. I'm, I, can't, I can't torture you much longer because you're going to get no, annoyed please, with me, but right. can you tell me what kind of a... Fakakta college student were you yourself? I was an I was a good student. I mean, it, it's always been the case with me that if I was interested in the subject, I did very well at it. If I wasn't that interested in it, I didn't do so great. But like I said, when I was there at Yale, I I just was in plays constantly. I was constantly in whatever play I could be in. I was in it, and I acted all the time. That's mostly what I did. And I was, other than academically, I was fine. I was a fine student, you know. Can you tell me a scene other than the ice skating scene, the roller skating scene? Can you tell me a scene and how it came about and what you thought about it and how you broke it down? There's an interesting, I can think of right off the bat, there's a scene in the end when I come in and I have to talk to the kids' parents and mm -hmm. I have to sort of 
lie to the parents and stuff. And there was an interesting thing, actually, with the director, because usually he and I have no problem. And there was a big discussion about whether I should sit down and talk to them or whether I should stay standing. And I felt I should sit down because I thought I should break protocol. I shouldn't. I should sit down and not be the guy sort of standing there being called to the carpet to sort of account for what happened. And the director didn't agree with that. He thought I should stay standing up. It was actually a big debate we had about it. And in the end, I think he was right that I should should have stayed standing. That he he still he still stays standing like a good soldier, and he doesn't sort of like break protocol and try to come down to sort of appeal to these people. He stays standing erect like a good Roman soldier like he is and sacrifices himself. And there there was a big discussion about that, and it made a difference. I think the director was right. Does that make any sense, what I said? Yes, it does. How many times have you seen the movie? Uh, Twice. Where did you see it the first time? I saw it in a rough cut of it a long time ago when it was complete, but it had no music in it, and it it hadn't been color-corrected and all that stuff. And then I finally saw it again, one of these... I saw it in a screening, um, again, one of these other screenings with an audience, which was great, because I also watched it with no audience the first time, and it's great to see with a crowd. If somebody is listening in or just tuned in, I'm talking to Paul Giamatti. He is up for an Oscar for The Holdovers. He has been a semi-pain in the ass for me to get. I've had to be (laughs) go to everybody except Donald Trump to find out how to get an interview with him. Okay. But the movie is fabulous, and you are terrific, and I love you, and thank you for coming on to talk with me. I I love you. This was an honor. Thank you for finally tracking me down. (laughs) Thanks, sweetheart. Lots of luck. I'll I'll be there rooting for you. Thanks a lot, Cindy. Okay, honey. Bye. Okay. Bye. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Kelly O'Hara, who is now starring in Days of Wine and Roses at Studio 54. First, tell me, what what is Elk City, Oklahoma? You're from there. I never heard of it. <laughs> well, unless you've driven cross-country on Route 66, you might not have heard of it, but it's definitely a stop along the way. It's a small town in western Oklahoma. Um, my my parents grew up there. Uh, my father's parents before him. Uh, it's it's been in the family for a long time. Part of the old um, farmland, you know, that the Irish came and tried to have. And um, and I grew up on that farm, same farm that's still being farmed. What did they What did they farm? Vegetables. When I when I was a kid, we farmed uh, cotton, wheat, and cattle. And um, the way the climate has changed, there's no longer any cotton or wheat, but we do, we still run cattle. My uncle still is there doing, doing it. What a, what a change, what a change from you. <laughs> I mean, really. So tell me about your schooling. Where, where did you go and how was the school? Well, I found out about a voice teacher in Oklahoma named Florence Birdwell when I was about six, five or six years old. 
And I, I set in motion a dream in me that wanted to learn and learn to sing from her. And she taught at Oklahoma City University, which is a wonderful fine arts university in central Oklahoma. And um, I really never wavered. Uh, I, I took lessons from a student of hers through high school, and then I auditioned and got to be one of her students. And um, she really changed changed my path, my life. And she was a very strong, bold, uh, you know, wonderful woman. And uh, I ended up studying with her for four years and then moving, just moving without a clue or a job or a place to live with two suitcases, moving to New York City uh, right after I graduated college. But Kelly, that was a beginning that's far away from the life we all have now. How did you decide from being somebody who loved the land and all to become show business, a singer? How? Well, let me just say, I still love the land. I love nature. Um, I'm, I'm, and I love New York City. I mean, I felt alive for the first time really in my life when I came there for the first time. I was 21 years old when I visited. Never saw a Broadway show until then. Um, I, I don't know. There was something, maybe I'm reincarnated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, when, when I read a biography of of the Gershwin brothers, I feel like I am I have pangs, like I'm missing something, like I should be in the book. Um there's something about it that was from the from my earliest memories. I felt my mother made me fall, and my dad made me fall in love with old movies, uh, movie musicals. Um, I, I definitely watched every uh, Jack Lemmon, Lee Remick, uh, you know, every movie that, that they just showed. They were movie buffs, and I, I had that going on in my house, and I had my dreams in my head, and and I loved music. I don't know. I started singing and and somehow had something there and and I'm here uh you know some things are just not that obvious I don't, I'm not quite sure why because my siblings don't do it but you're so you're so terrific and you're a big star and you're running really mm-hmm. hot on Broadway so I would have assumed incorrectly that there were there were live entertain there was the opportunity to see live entertainment where you lived there was any no I I I didn't get to see any anything live really of any you know, there was a community theater in my town that would do something once in a while, very small productions. And um, no, I really never saw something like Broadway until I was in college. <laughs> what did you yeah. major in in college? I majored in vocal performance opera. I, I, uh, it was never my intention, but that's the way my voice uh, bends, even though I, I have tried to force it into other boxes, believe me. Um, but I, I, I ended up in musical theater because I, I so desperately wanted to be a better actress. All the, I still do. I'm, I'm working all the time. So I moved to New York and went to acting school at Strasburg for a while. And then I got a first job and I started off and it was in the musical theater. Strasburg, I did his life story as told oh, to did. me. I, and I, I did his life story and I lived with him at it was it was a wonderful oh. experience. So you learned a lot at Strasbourg. I feel like I did. I had a, a couple of really wonderful teachers, Maurizio Bustamante and Lola Cohen. It was a short-lived program for me because I went on the I got a job and went on the road. But I still remember it so deeply. Um, and I really think, though, my my secondary education has been largely in the shows with the directors I've worked with, um, the different parts I've played, and. I've just, I mean, I'm still learning, you know, we're all, we're all still learning. Okay, so Kelly, K-E-L-L-I, where did the name or the spelling come from? 
Well, it seemed I, it seems I wanted to change it for a while. It seemed too cute for my personality. But I, my mother just says that it was a very common thing to spell everything with an I. In fact, I had all these girlfriends growing up named Jamie and Tracy and Terry and Casey, <laughs> and they were all spelled with I's. And okay. so I, I fit right in out there. But um, you know, it's people get it wrong all the time, and that's okay. It, I think when you eventually, it just what makes you different, you know, that you 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 take you hold on to it. <laughs> I think you're terrific. We all think you're terrific. You're almost never working. You're always in something that's hot, that's terrific. So where do you keep all your awards? You have lots of them. Where do you keep them? Well, I, I, I've been nominated for a few, but I, I, I do have a Tony, and it's on a shelf um, in one of the rooms in my house, but not. Uh, I'm not a big, you know... I, it's not really part of my personality. I don't have things hanging on the walls necessarily. If I had an, a nice office, I might do that, but um, I don't really even have that that in this house. So it sits there, and believe me, it makes me proud, and um, and it's a journey through my career. But I know better than any. Mine came a little late after you know almost 20 years in the business, and it's uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to have. And but it, it also can't really be the reason for the season, you know. <laughs> Can you tell me this? Well, we know the story, but for anyone who doesn't know, the story of today, today of uh, the days of wine and roses. It was a movie in '62, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Tell us it about was based it. On tell a us tel- the. Yeah. Tell us the story. It was made into a movie with Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick, but it was based on a teleplay. This is very based on that, um, and and we have have the estate, you know, definitely uh, in collaboration with them. Craig Lucas has has adapted the the um, the original piece of material for this musical and joined with Adam Gettle. I, I had been doing a musical back in 2002 and three with Brian Darcy James called The Sweet Smell of Success, Marvin Hamlish musical with John Lithgow, and it closed early, and I went out of town to Sundance, the theater lab in Utah, to work on one project and was put into another new project called The Light in the Piazza, and I met Adam Gettle, Mm-hmm. and Craig Lucas, and I I had grown up on this, I mean, not as a small child, obviously, but I had seen this film, as I told you, we watched films like this all the time in my house, and I remember Adam and I having a discussion about making some weird operatic version of the day, dark, you know, dark musical drama of the Days of Wine and Roses, and I wanted to do it with Brian, because I had just worked with him in Sweet Smell Success, and just adored his his work and his personality, and I just thought he was so talented. And, you know, Adam went and got the rights, and I didn't really know for a while, and then he called me after some years and said, you know, I've started working on this. About 10 years later, there was a first song. I went and sang it. And after that, we started meeting and reading through half scripts, and, um, and then by about 2019, we did sort of a full reading of it, and then 2020, we staged a reading, and then we we're here. The pandemic happened and put it back a tiny bit more, but now now we're here. I didn't realize that it took so long. I didn't realize it took so long. So you were part of creating it, actually. Go back to your first Broadway show. Do you remember what it was and how you did it? Yeah, my very first Broadway show was sort of unexpected. I, um, I, I said I'd gone on tour. I got this national tour of Jekyll and Hyde 
which was sort of unlike anything I'd done because it was a pop musical and I had just gotten out of opera school. (laughs) But um, I did it and I had a blast. It had been redirected by David Warren and choreographed by Jerry Mitchell. And it was very different uh, from the Broadway show. And when I came back to town, um, you know, I had given myself a couple of years to try to get a Broadway show and it was almost two years to the date. And they called and said, one of the ensemble members has gotten pregnant and it just happens to be the role that you were playing on the tour. <laughs> and they threw me in the show for the last four months of its run. And I made my debut that way in, in Jekyll and Hyde, of all things. Did you ever screw up anything? Did you ever forget a line? I mean, oh, I've been God. in show business all my life, and I've always screwed up until I finally got the hell out of it because I wasn't good. But did you ever, <laughs> did you ever screw up something? Oh my God! Come on a Tuesday. Come on a Thursday. I mean, listen. This live theater is. There's nothing to get exactly right, and that's sort of what I love about it. It's you got to be flexible. You got to, you know, the stories you tell later about the time when you, you know, cut a whole scene out of the show and shortened it by. You know, these happen all the time, and um, especially in a show like this, which is one of the most creatively loose and freeing and um, raw things I've ever done. You know, something happens every single night. I kid you not. Well, how do you pick it? How do you pick it up? How do you remember? Is it that you look at the actor next to you and hope that he'll give you the line? How do you survive? Well, I know how I would survive in this show. Um, if anything happened, I, if I fell in any way, I, there would be a guy named Brian Darcy James catching me. <laughs> He's uh, and I, I hope he feels the same. It's just one of those particular types of uh, collaborations. But also, I mean, listen, lots of things have happened. You know, you go go to the white room for a while, they call it, when you just can't remember anything yeah, or what yeah, your name yeah. is. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet, knock on wood. But um, you might improv a little bit. You might, you know, uh, you, you might scramble. Who knows? You might just walk off the stage. Um, I went completely blank in a production, in a full opera, downstage center at the Metropolitan Opera. I went completely blank in Italian and just had to walk off the stage. (laughs) So listen, it happens and you sort of had nightmares about it, but you also just have to laugh at it. You're only human. But if you walked off the stage, what happens? Is it empty or do you walk back or what? (laughs) Well, what I had to do was I had to at least give the guy who sang next the cue line, which I did, um, he actually whispered it to me, Gloria," And I went, Gloria," and walked off the stage. <laughs> so okay. he was, thank- okay. thankfully, he took over. Yes. I know you've had a Tony nominee, nominee about seven times. One of the things that I thought was the greatest thing when you were in The King and I, I knew the queen. I knew the queen of Thailand. She was my friend, and I did shopping for her when when she wow. came here. And we've taken photographs together. So that king, I knew. How how did you do? How did you learn about the king and I? It was so extravagant. Yeah, well, there were a lot of steps, you know, before I even knew I was doing it. I read books, uh, and in the I read her, you know, books that, they, that this story was based on, Anna Leon Owens. Um, I read all about the time period in Siam, uh, modern-day Thailand, and, and about King, the king and his, his relationships uh, during colonization of the area around him. I mean, we sort of we studied all of that, and then just her as a person, because, you know, you're never playing a, a time or a situation, you're playing a human. And so I was a mother of a boy about the same age at that time. I definitely identified with that. 
um, protecting him in a world that I'd never been. It was a very different time in the world. You couldn't educate yourself about that. Um, being an unwed woman um, working there. And so there were all, this, all of these things that, that go on top of all the, the historical truths and what era it was, what time in the world it was, the Civil War was happening in the United States. Um, I think that you put all those pieces together and they become layers. And then what, what turns out at the end of the day is, is a, a layered human being. But mostly you got to put a little bit of yourself in there so that they can be authentic, I think. It's a real tough law. It's 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 a great it's a great show, magnificent show. What about the daily routine when you're on Broadway? Do you speak? Do you keep the throat quiet? I once was going in a car with a singer. I forgot where we were going, and she wanted the windows shut, the air conditioning off. She wanted everything mm. to protect her throat. Do you have to go through all of that kind of stuff? Well, listen, the performances have to be sort of the same as the living, which is if I try to control everything, I'm just going to doom myself. Um, I, I have two children, a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. I can't not be their mom because I have to have a perfect show every night. I can't not talk to them um, when they're sick. I can't not care for them. You know, maybe I wear a mask or something. <laughs> but it's like, I mean, if I tried to control it too much, I would probably end up being worse because it would make me a, a, a nervous wreck. And so I rest. I rest a lot. I drink a lot of water. I don't smoke. I don't drink a lot of alcohol. I, I exercise and I stretch my body. I have a routine. But what I try not to do is, is get neurotic because a healthy singing voice is, is just as controlled by the mind as it is by anything else. You can really sabotage yourself, and I've watched it happen, and I just don't have any plans to do that. Okay, well, one of the things we share is Dan Lipton. He is your accompanist, mm -hmm. and he That's is right. my friend, and he is married to the lady who was my editor for like 15 years at the New York Post, Rachel. Yes, and they love Rachel. you, love you, love you, love you. <laughs> yes. And I, I'm so happy that you, you came on the air with me because I was eager to talk to you. Thank you very, very much for taking the time. Yes, well, I'm happy to talk to you, and yes, we we all mutually love Dan and Rachel, <laughs> and um, and it's it's very nice to be on here. So thank you, thank you, sweetie. Bye. Okay, bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, seventy-seven WABC. Good afternoon, ladies and germs. This is Madam Adams. Madam Adams, from in case you're from out of town and have never read the New York Post, which I can barely believe, I am in the New York Post Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and have been since Thomas Jefferson's days. Now I am about to tell you about several people, but before I tell you about a lot of stuff, I want to tell you that we are on a station that loves to talk politics. And I am going to talk a little bit of politics, so pay attention. Right now, I'm going to tell you that those who claim to know say that whispers about Megan and her non-prince of a guy are getting louder, like how now they're not insanely euphoric, yippy-happy with their lives, their lies their whatever. This non-prince of a guy dislikes California. There's the London drama. He now resembles a jerk in two countries. Plus, they have fallen on their assets professionally. And that temp 
Duchess is going no place. Okay, all of this smells like the long-ago aroma of Wallace, that American divorcee Duchess of Windsor, and her abdicated ex-king husband Edward. Right off, it's headlines. It was photos. It was PR. The time came for them when there was no more limo, no more curtsies, no spring for your own sandwich. Your novelty was gone. When it basically osmosed into who the hell cares about them, came the realities. That's when I first met Bitter Wallace. I interviewed her at the Waldorf. She was bitter. She called him strictly His Royal Highness when referring to him. On their Waldorf couch, across the back, lay a huge, huge, real leopard fur. I said, what is that? She said, His Royal Highness shot it, and we take it with us wherever we go. When we are on board a ship, we take it. If we are on a plane, we pack it. He takes it wherever we go. His, uh, so where is His Royal Highness now, I asked. Well, she said, His Royal Highness is now inside working on our finances. Understand, we are no longer wealthy. We are in need of money. She later appeared at a Palm Beach gala. And don't tell me what I don't know. What I do know is her payment was jewelry, diamonds. Okay, back to something else. More excuses about the Estee Lauder gold mine losing its shine. I am hearing that it's going down and it's not doing well. Listen to me. The juice leaking from inside is that today's young'uns dressing in short shorts with loose boobs bobbling plus stiletto fingernails in Salvador Dali colors, fake huge eyelashes, add-on hairpieces. They do not want what is considered old hat cosmetics. That's why Estee Lauder is going down. They want the newer, jazzier-type stuff out there. So how do I know this? Because I know this. That's how. A friend has shared vicious email that he received. It's going around, so I want to tell you about it so that you can beware. Hackers claimed to know all this man's activities. He got an email. They said they knew about his banking, his emails, his transactions. They said they knew he's into dirty movies, which he is not, X-rated activities, which he is not. They said they even have visual proof of things he's doing to himself while watching. Not true. They said if this guy doesn't send them thousands of dollars to an address they gave, and they have demanded, then, they will want from a hidden account they name. 
they will want money, or they will post all his messages, his dirty photos, and etc. for the world to see. I am telling you now, because if you listen to me, pay attention, be alert. A few years ago, people based in Nigeria worked this same scam. This is going around very heavily. Pay attention. Watch what you receive in the mail. Now, if you find time to wipe Taylor Swift off Kelsey, I want you to know a little more about the scam. Outside bad guys can now scam your inside home electronics. With phone and alarms, they then can shut all off. They can cause an armed inside invasion, which would allow a homeowner no defense. They can also get your key data so they can unlock your car. Digital scams. Nothing anymore is safe. Please pay attention. Have credit companies shut access to your data so they cannot steal by impersonating you. Lock your laptop and your phones. Store no passwords on phones or computer. Try old-fashioned paper. No checks into a mailbox. They get stolen. They get cashed. And careful on opening emails. These people have become enormous. They are phishing scams. Take no email from an institution that is sent to you. Technology scams are now out of control. Back up your key data. Never store where it can get accessed. In a shop, entering a password or a passcode to pay, do it silently. Hide your info. People are watching. Change your passwords. Technology attacks are speedy and short. If you call your wife, your child, your friend, they might answer a scam call. AI can replicate that voice and produce a conversation requesting money. You cannot tell AI talking. Be aware of all that comes from a so-called relative or friend that seems not in character. I am telling you, a caller may sound like one you know, but it may not be them at all. Soon come videos of people we know, but they're not. Imagine a video of a world leader declaring war on another country, and it wasn't them in the first place. So go figure, there are worse things out there than Biden, who now gets so garbled, he'll soon call it the Democratic Party. Please pay attention. I needed you to know all of this. This has been happening to everybody I know. It has happened even to me. So I'm telling you to watch all of your privacy. The only thing you should take public is radio so you can listen to me. 
because I'm on every Sunday from 2 to 3 o'clock, and I am loving you, and I am now about to say goodbye. Bye. I'll see you next week. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno.